on the evening of that first day of the week when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus said to them again, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The title of today's homily is The Unifier. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to bring unity. And uh, that'll also be the challenge of my homily. I have some two good ideas that I, I get excited about ideas, as you know. So hopefully I will be able to unify and help them be clear for you. For the ancient Jews, Pentecost, Shavuot, as it's called, the feast, was one of their top three religious holidays. And it had two important meetings. If you thought, what are the top three American holidays? You'd come up with yours, maybe Christmas, Easter. Maybe those are religious. You say 4th of July, Memorial Day. Every feast, there's top ones, most important ones. Pentecost for the Jews was one of their top ones. And it had two meanings, two things they were celebrating there. First, on Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, just like Pentecost for us Catholics and Christians is more or less 50 days after Easter. Easter happened because Jesus died on Passover, right? <laughs> so we have our Easter, and we both coincide with our celebration of Pentecost with the Jews. Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, was a feast that celebrated the first fruits of the spring grain harvest, right? Actually, in Mediterranean, they have two harvests, right? We're used to just one. You know, you plant right now, and then in the fall, you have harvest, Thanksgiving time. They had two. So this is the first. They would celebrate the grain that was harvest and bring it to the temple and sprinkle some of the seed on the altar in thanksgiving to God who had blessed the harvest. And then they would donate to the priests some that was left over, and they'd go back home and start to eat and store up what was there. So it was a celebration of the harvest. And in this sense, it was a very natural feast. It was a feast of celebrating the, the circle of life, right? These seeds that were produced in the harvest, part of it was for their preservation. They would take the seed and store it to be able to plant next year. And then part of it, they would eat, grind up, make bread, right? So they were celebrating God's sustenance of the people, right? And they're providing for them for the future, right? It's like the circle of life. This whole process of the death of the plant that's planted and then it springs up and gives off its seeds. Some of that seed falls and dies so that new life can be created and some of it is pulled off so that we can be filled and live, right? It's a bit of the seed, the death and the resurrection of the seed as well as the sustaining the fruit that sustains people who eat of it. There's a very natural logic to life there. But there's also a divine logic in there. 
There's an order of creation that God established that then becomes the foundation for the order of our life, but also the order of our worship. God sustains everything through life and creation, and we feel through spiritual life sustained by him, right? And it's not just the seed, but it's also the fruit. And that's why it's appropriate for us to celebrate today the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the fruit, the sustenance that comes to us of the mystery of the circle in Jesus Christ. His passion, death, and resurrection, remember the seed that falls to the earth and dies. If not, it remains just a seed. Jesus falls to the earth and dies so that he can spring up in resurrection and give life to the church. How does he give that fruit of life to us? Through the Holy Spirit. And so as the Jews celebrate the harvest feast, we celebrate through this same feast the first fruits of Jesus's life which is the Holy Spirit. He gives after he dies and raises from the dead the first fruit that falls off the tree of Jesus Christ is his Holy Spirit that he gives to his apostles and sends them out. Another fruit is the church, right? This group of men and women that he was calling together and forming and accompanying and convincing that he was the Messiah through the miracles and through his preachings. After he's dead, and rises again, the first fruit of his life is, as he goes up to the Father, send the Spirit, and send out the church. Those are the two big fruits of Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit and us, the church, to be sent out. Right? The second meaning of this Jewish festival of Pentecost was that it commemorated the giving to Moses of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. They celebrated in this feast the occasion when God gave them the law to Moses. Why? As you recall, soon after the Israelites had miraculously escaped from Egypt, God sent them the law, right? A guide of how they should live now that they were free to live as they want. They weren't for those four, five hundred years under the Egyptians where they had to do and obey and follow the order and the law and the work week and even to some degree, the worship of the Egyptians. Now they were free to do what they wanted. And God immediately stepped in. This is how you are to live. This is how you're to organize yourselves as a people, my people. This is my law. And around those Ten Commandments, they gathered and they began to order their traditions, their people, their worship. So the law, the word of God, that divine logic became their pride, their joy. This is what God gave us to let us form ourselves as a people. So they celebrated that. They celebrated that at Pentecost, that God spoke what was in his mind, what was his spirit. He gave it to them. He shared with them his heart so that they could then be an extension of him in the world, his people. And that law became their bond of unity, what they rallied around. This is what we believe, right? Those Ten Commandments came, you say the parallel in the United States, kind of their, their document, you know, their constitution, their bill of rights. It's around these documents that we all agree and we form our union. And so it is with the Ten Commandments for the people of God. And so it is for us in the church. And that's why it's appropriate we celebrate today, the Pentecost, the formation of the church, because it's around Jesus's word and his spirit that he gives to us, that we become unified as the people of God. No longer each one speaking his own language, 
each their own organ in the body, but all unified and working together to be an extension of God in the world. We become his mission. We're unified, we're united, right? Similar happens in a family, right? It's around the, two, the couple that come together in love and the first fruits of their love become their children. And around those children, they start to speak and to teach and to form traditions and to form a family. And around that love, they form, this is the way we live as a family. This is what we do. This is how we celebrate. These are our traditions, right? So important. That's the spirit that unites all of us. The spirit is the unifier. I had a beautiful experience of the Holy Spirit is unifier. This is a good example, but it goes back a little bit. But many of you will remember around the death of John Paul II, the Pope. Remember that? That would have been back in 2005 when he passed away. I was in Rome at the time. And it was an amazing expression of this unifying power of the Spirit and of the church. Just those few weeks after his death, more than 3,000 journalists came to Rome immediately upon his death. Almost overnight, hundreds of broadcast tents were set up around St. Peter's Square, all with a view of the cupola of St. Peter's, right? Uh, they gave round-the-clock coverage. During that week, that nine to 12 days, two million pilgrims immediately made their way to stand in line and pay respect to the Holy Father. Some of them waited in line 24 hours. Luckily, we got up at like four in the morning, ran down there, got in line, and we're only there for seven hours in line to pay respects to John Paul II. But then the funeral itself, followed by millions via television, right? And it included I mean, so many authorities from around four queens, five kings, 70 prime ministers and heads of government, 100 other recognized dignitaries, dozens of Orthodox, Protestant, Jewish leaders joined in the mass. It was really like the first Pentecost. It was an amazing, I myself was in the seminary and uh, after getting everybody on the buses to get down to mass, I found myself without a car. And so uh, luckily I got a phone call from the seminary across the street, the Korean seminary, and they had a cardinal there, elderly Cardinal Sin. And he, uh, funny last name for a cardinal, but that was his name, Cardinal Sin. And so he needed a ride down to the St. Peter's Square and we had a car. And so I picked him up and drove him down, and everything was blockaded two, out, two miles before you could get to St. Peter's Square, no, no traffic. But when the police saw I had a cardinal in the front seat, they let me through, drove all the way to St. Peter's, and walked him in the side of St. Peter's, and I found myself in the sacristy with all the other cardinals. So then, he was quite elderly, he needed water, so I accompanied him onto the altar, and I just sat behind him. So I had front row seats for the whole mass. It, and you could see all these people, all these different walks of life, all these languages all from around the world rallying around the symbol of unity, which was the Pope around his death, around his life, celebrating. Another funny story is as soon as we left the mass, the heads of state came out and walked away. Bush was there, Clinton was there, Tony Blair was there, and they let them out first of all the heads of state after the cardinals had processed after mass. So they went into an empty St. Peter's Basilica because everybody was in the plaza. And I walked in and those two went off to the side and were standing there waiting for their cars to come pick them up. 
And it was in the height of some political, it wasn't a war, but there was some big issue going on that obviously England and the United States were in the middle of. And just to see the two heads of state leaning against a statue talking, waiting for their cars to pick them up. And I said, well, else in the world are the president and the prime minister waiting. <laughs> like they had to wait for the Pope and the church to do their thing before they could get let out, right? And there they were talking, waiting. <laughs> the symbol of unity that the church has to pull together, to unite all these diverse because of the one faith, because of the 10 commandments, because of the unifying mission we have in the church and through the Holy Spirit. As we take this away, brothers and sisters, you and I as members of the church who have received the Holy Spirit through baptism, through confirmation, through the living grace of God within us that guides us, that speaks to us about what God wants here and now in the actions of our daily life, that power of the Holy Spirit should be a unifying power. It's that Holy Spirit that leads us to want to be in communion with our brothers and sisters, that doesn't leave us peaceful when there's conflict, doesn't leave us content when there's division in our families, in our loving relationships, in our schools, in our communities. There's a drive in us through the Holy Spirit to want unity. We don't get unity by sacrificing the truth God gave us, the Ten Commandments. Everything that God spoke to us is what we unify and rally around, what we hold dear, what we believe. To get to that unity sometimes requires standing up for that. But to get to that unity, sometimes it means conceding on the non-essentials in that desire for unity. So brothers and sisters, as you know, I often give you homework, and I'll think of a way to make this more concrete. But the theme is be unifiers, not by being so bland and non-confrontational that nothing matters and whatever. That's no way to unity. That's a way actually eventually towards anarchy (laughs) because everybody just goes. Every organ does what it wants, and the body dies. It's holding truth to what we hold in common. Again, like family, like marriage. We hold these promises till death do us part that unify. And we learn to rally around those together. Let's pray for that gift of unity in the church. Pray for that gift of unity in your families. Let's pray also for that gift of unity in our own consciences, in our own hearts, in our own lives, that we live according to our conscience. Jesus, I pray for that gift of unity of your Holy Spirit to come upon us in this Mass and in our lives. Help my brothers and sisters, Lord, to live this unity, to live in love with you and what you have taught us, to live in love with their brothers and sisters, able to go beyond division in order to find unity around what you've revealed to us. Pray for the grace of of moral strength, of fortitude, of prudence, uh, of mercy in order to arrive at that unity that you want for us and the church. Amen.